A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Khan and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela's not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Abby. Hi, Angela. Hello. Hi, guys. So nice for the three of us to be back. I hope everyone had a nice break and I'm off and we're kind of in the home stretch. So it feels good. Today, um, we're going to be um, opening up our mailbag and focusing on four questions, trying to answer them. Um, Although we do answer them via email when we get them. But what we say as a good teacher, if someone has a question, probably other people have that same question. So we thought we would address it to the group and see if we help um, more than one person out. Um, But before we do that, I want to address some feedback I got about my comments to Angela about her notification dinging. I got some (laughs) feedback that maybe I was a little harsh. And I just want to say that this wasn't the first time that it happened. And so it it has been pent up and it's been boiling. And so I apologize, Angela, if I sounded harsh or mean or frustrated or that I reacted really quickly, but she knows that this has been something we've been talking about after multiple um, recordings. And so again, I apologize. I'm I'm a very sensitive flower, Robin. The fans were upset. I don't yes. think you were upset. It was the people that were advocating for you. I I can I can take it, Robin. I can take it. Good. I hope your fans can take it too. I apologize. And let us know, you know, Angela, if you need like a behavior support plan or something, like a reinforcement system. I feel like I could reach out and get one pretty quick. Yep. So we know some people. <laughs> um, okay. So the first question reads, I was told that if a child refuses to take his or her medication, that the school can hold the parent liable by contacting social services. I don't believe this is true and not something I would ever do, but a coworker is seriously considering this option for a 16-year-old student. What are your thoughts? So I can weigh in from the special ed director side, and then Angela, I've already seen the eye roll happening. So I know you have an opinion about this, but I have fielded this call a couple of times in my career where people who are really well-intentioned and who really are worried about a student um, get frustrated because they think a parent should be doing something different than what they're doing. And I think we've talked about this a little bit in talking about parenting that, you know, the bottom line is um, 
you are not the child's parent if you're just their teacher and you don't get to tell parents what to do and you don't get to decide what they decide is right for their child. Those are very personal decisions. And so giving people um, that message clearly, as well as um, giving them permission to um, de-escalate themselves is important. And somebody should probably do that for this listener's colleague. Um, That being said, there is an important uh, distinction between um, you having an opinion about what someone should do parenting wise and medical neglect of a necessary medication. And so I think that question goes to your school nurse, as well as perhaps the consulting physician in your school district um, and your principal. And even at that juncture, that decision is still a very thoughtfully constructed decision on a medical analysis. But we're not talking about that with this question. This is really an opinion about parenting. Um, And so I have a hunch, Angela, you would agree. I, I would agree with all of that. And I would just add that the age of the student is probably key here in terms of who's not doing what. I mean, at a certain point with a 16-year-old student, whether they're taking their medication or not, is going to be a conversation, if you're even having that conversation, with the student as well as the parent, because they're inching ever closer to an adult. Um, And no one can force a 16-year-old to take medication. So that's a totally different dynamic. Yep. I was thinking the same thing because the court system has the child in needs of support chins. It used to be the stubborn child and that ends at age 16. The courts won't even intervene at that time. And so you're right. The age of the student is super important. And the um, other feedback I gave to the, the person who wrote the question is that you really run the risk of jeopardizing a relationship with a family for something that won't yield what they're hoping to yield. So if you do even make the phone call to ch- to social services and it doesn't get screened in because again of all of the reasons that you just said, you have jeopardized a relationship with a family. And so really the first thing that you want to do is build a family meeting to say, these are the reasons why I'm concerned. This is the behavior that the student's demonstrating. They're sleeping a lot. They're they're impulsive. They're X, Y, and Z. And what can we do to make this better problem solve for the student rather than go in in a punitive fashion? Because again, you'll get more through relationship building and working together than you will in any other avenue. Absolutely. And I, I would just say in my experience, uh, whenever that question has come up, the right thing to do is to have um, a thoughtful, kind, and respectful conversation with the parent, sharing the school district's observations and the impact on the student's learning of whatever the issue is, and to collect data and to do that over and over and over in a non-judgmental and neutral and helpful, supportive fashion. And people don't like to do that because it takes a long time. It's stressful. It's conflictual. And it's easier to kind of come in from this like other judgment point and just say like someone else, a third party will fix this. I don't have to do that. And unfortunately we do. Well, usually when you get this question, it's because a child is doing something disruptive to the classroom. I mean, that, that is usually the impetus of someone needing to intervene on medication. That's generally the issue. And so really looking at whatever behavior and intervention supports academically or social emotionally, what supports can we put in place to help the student is really where we should be starting. In addition, also, um, 
parents don't have to tell us what medication they're giving their kids. So we often are guessing about that. And it's really helpful when parents do share that they're um, going through like a med wash or working with their doctor to find a medication to deal with something. And that's super helpful for us to know because often that's impacting um, the behavior one way or the other. But at the end of the day, they don't have to tell us that. So the fact that they tell us that, and then there's a problem with it, and then we're not trying to work collaboratively with them um, or asking them to reach out to their medical providers to sort of address that issue is, is really counterproductive. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks team. All right. Here's question number two. Have you experienced staffing shortages and what have you done about it? Yes. Yes. And yes. And yes. And so I loved seeing this question come through because not only is it a national phenomena, but it's like personal. Right? Like I am personally working on cases where we have had one, two, three, four people in the role across the school year so far, multiple providers from multiple places. Um, and it is not great. So fundamentally, the answer is yes. We've had two really good stories come out of the staffing stuff here. And I wanted to just think about them as examples. So one of them was that we had a teacher who um, left mid-year and took a job somewhere else, which as you listeners know, is really unheard of in, in school that most people stay for the full school year, right? We think of our jobs in a year long calendar and we change jobs at the end of the school year. And so it's kind of unheard of for somebody to be like, oh, I'm I'm out like in November. Thanks. And so we did have that happen this year. Um, and we were able to reach out to the person's um, assistant who was in a graduate program and had been left high and dry because the, per the person who left was also the supervising practitioner for this uh, young professional and find a new supervising practitioner, keep the person in their program. And then the person was actually able to transition to the teacher role. And obviously that leads to the question, the next question, which is, is that person licensed? And no, they are not. And then that leads to the question of what do you do about that? And so what we did about that is we notified everybody in writing that um, we had an unanticipated vacancy, that we had looked for a person and had no takers, and that we had a person who knew the children who was in a supervisory program and would be graduating at the end of this year. And we hired that person as the long-term sub. We added additional supervision support to that person. And that person is doing an amazing job and is highly likely to be a finalist for the job long-term because of her work this year. And it would never have happened if this crazy job shortage thing hadn't put us in a position where we really had no choice but to get very creative. We had one parent on the caseload of 25 who wrote to us and said, I'm really nervous about this. Please tell me more about the person's credentials. And we did that with the person. And we also um, shared what our supervision and support plan was with that parent. And um, it is working and it, and it, it might not have. So that I thought was a good example of something that happened that was okay. That's super creative. I think the most important part of this um, conversation is around communication and making sure that everyone is aware of the start and end dates of staff, who even the short-term supports are going to be. If you have some sort of stopgap situation that you have to put in place before a long-term solution can be found, I think that um, alleviates a lot of fear and concern, especially around 
the parent saying, who can I communicate with on a daily basis? Because we can have some students who are not verbal communicators in the way where they would come home and share something about the day independently. And so the parents really do need to have that contact person on the school site to be able to reach out to. I think the other thing that we've done is use contract vendors and contract vendors are making a ton of money these days, pulling people around and shifting people around, even throughout different states um, to fill positions. And I think that's something to be said around um, eventually having um, sort of a national licensure system so people can move back and forth between states a little bit more easily than what can happen now. Yeah, this situation has totally exposed the um, provincialness of the state-by-state licensure model for teachers and particularly for folks that work in shortage areas like we do, um, how that it just hobbles the capacity of people to respond to a, a problem. Um, I would just say in our in our instance where we promoted the assistant who was in her graduate program, we also gave parents in writing um, the option that they could still have their child with a practitioner who was licensed if that was very important to them. Um, but what it would mean would their their child would have to change to a different practitioner and no one selected that. So I thought that was really um, important. But, you know, that's in writing in a letter on letterhead in every single kid's file in the correspondence section forever. And that's relevant. And then, Robin, would you just say a little bit about your um, I know you filled a leave this year and you filled that with a creative solution, too, and that people might want to know about that kind of intern model. Um, where you were able to fill a leave in a tough market. Yes, we had um, a maternity leave from April vacation till June. And so we posted it and it was for a classroom with a, a severe intensive license, which is hard to find. And we ended up moving an intern that we had um, who was finishing up her graduate program in a similar program at a different level in the district. And she was able to finish up her graduate coursework and then take over full responsibilities of the classroom for the rest of this year. And so far it's been really successful. So that's been great. Um, My perspective on this is a little bit different and maybe not responsive to the question, but I'll say it anyway, which is that it's been interesting from like a teacher employment perspective. Um, especially in in schools or districts or charter schools where there were gaps um, prior to COVID or at the beginning of COVID and teachers were hired um, in that time period. Um, and maybe the, the interview process wasn't quite as thorough because they weren't in person and they were being interviewed over Zoom and you couldn't do the same sort of <clears throat> teacher classroom component pieces. And then what we found in some cases is when we came back in person in these various settings, there were gaps, right? So like, oh, we're having a problem with this teacher. And how long has this teacher been around? Oh, it's, they were hired during COVID. So then there's a a real concern with the previous hire not meeting the needs that they were hired for, but then afraid to let them go because there's the shortage. So it becomes a real um, sort of downward spiral that I think we're seeing happening right now. And we're going to have to sort of crawl out of it a little bit, but also a lot of people are not going into teaching as much as they used to. And I think this is a temporary issue and I think it's going to work itself out, but it's causing a little bit of a, of, of, of gaps, I think across different districts and um, different private schools and charter schools as well. 
Yeah, even English teachers and social studies teachers who used to have two, 300 applicants for one opening this year are getting like under 100 applicants. So it's not just special education, but last year I posted a position, I had three applicants and that is really small. It's a small pool. I was extremely fortunate that two of the three were really highly qualified people. So I had a really good choice to make, but yeah, the, the amount of people going into teaching is um, definitely shrinking. Okay, Angela, discipline question. Should special education students who are suspended less than 10 days be provided with opportunities to make up and complete assignments? So in Massachusetts, 100% yes, regardless of whether you're a special education student or a regular education student. <clears throat> when 37H and three quarters came out, um, under the chapter 222 legislation um, that changed from making work available to proactively providing um, the work and making sure that it wasn't just being left at the front desk anymore if you want it, and also being able to make up work that's missed in terms of tests and quizzes and whatnot for everybody. So 100% of Massachusetts. So this is going to be sort of state by state. But the movement is towards, yes, that you are able to have opportunities to make up work and complete assignments. And again, this goes back to a phrase that I actually haven't said, I think, in the last couple of podcasts, which is because education is a right and not a privilege, even if you're consequenced for behavior that's a violation of the handbook, which is what discipline in school is, um, it should not be impacting your access to education or your ability to continue to move forward. Awesome. Thank you. And um, okay, here's a, a timely question. So can you determine ESY or extended school year services at any point during the year or only after data is taken over breaks? And I think this question um, relates to the fact that extended school year is commonly known as a service that responds to regression of skills after a, um, a, a break in service. Um, so the, the answer to this, yes, you can determine extended school year services at any point, because actually in Massachusetts, you don't determine extended school year just as a regression of skills. There are many other reasons why you can determine extended school year, and we'll post that in the show notes, but extenuating circumstances of the student, um, extent of disability, and you can predict that the student needs consistency and routine for longer periods of time. There are other reasons why someone might be provided with extended school year services, and you can determine that at any point of the year. You don't have to wait until you've collected a certain type of data. You sure can. And I think there's some analysis out there that would say it's almost a denial of fate if you know that the person um, should be qualified for ESY and you're not offering it because the family doesn't have full understanding of the totality of the proposed program from the district, right? Because you're using this artificial, we only make this decision after April 15th kind of timeframe. And that's probably um, in the biggest of big pictures, um, you know, not helpful, right? So I did pull up the the issue um, from our existing FAQ on this topic, and it lists a number of, of things. And Robin, you mentioned the degree of impairment. It also raises some things that might be a little bit controversial. And so we will post it, but in Massachusetts, you're allowed to consider the parent's ability to provide structure at home. And that usually makes people a little bit um, agitated. 
uh, in schools because they feel that that's somehow beyond the scope and purview of the school system. And that's um, a complicated, nuanced um, conversation, but we have that on our FAQ here in Massachusetts. We also have um, the availability of alternative resources so that the team should have some thought about what the students um, able to access and what the family is able to access for everything from the geography of where you're located to what the students uh, programming has been in the past and the success of that programming. Um, interestingly, there's another thing we consider, which is uh, the child's ability to interact with non-disabled children. So sometimes a student might have a very restrictive school program and we're using ESY to provide more time with non-disabled peers. Um, and I could also see a case maybe where it's even vice versa. And so we'll post it up because there are some interesting um, pieces in there. And we also um, certainly have had conversations with teams that all three of us have been part of where to um, spin up the kids program, it takes so much multidisciplinary work that it would be counterproductive to the student to even um, have that engine turn off over the summer, right? Because the amount of energy it would take to ramp it back up would in inherently um, be just so much work for the student as well as the professionals that it would potentially impede their rate of progress. And so we'll put that up. And I know some of those bullets will be controversial for people, depending what state you're in. Um, but it's, it's very interesting reading. Awesome. And our last question has to do with um, specially designed instruction and how that um, intersects with universal design for learning. And someone asked for a resource that could be considered uh, specially designed instruction, but also could be used universally throughout the classroom. And one really powerful tool that comes to mind to me, and I'm in no way um, getting paid for promoting this, is uh, Read Write for Google. And that is an assistive technology extension that you have to pay for um, it's part of the Google platform, and most schools these days are using Chromebooks and Google um, educationally, and so it works really nicely with what's being offered in the schools already, and it provides a toolbar with probably 30 different functions, um, anywhere from read aloud to highlighting tools to dictation to word prediction to picture vocabulary builders. Um, it's just really super powerful, and um, it meets the needs of most students, and we actually had a student who had a medical issue who I was able to say, like, you don't even need a scribe because we have this awesome uh, extension that's embedded into our system for all students. And so I think it's something worth looking into. And um, we can put in the show notes a little video that promotes it. I was just going to say that one of the best investments that I've made recently um, has been in um, a, a infrastructure for the management of data for our ABA programs. And so we probably have about 50 kids who we have on a particular um, tool and you can, there are a variety of them out there um, where the kind of scope and sequence of all of their ABA programming is laid into that. All the programs are um, in it. And then the data management is really much more about the analysis of the data as opposed to the entry of the data. So it freed up our BCBAs to really do a sophisticated analysis, which is what we're paying them for, not be overseeing people who, um, you know, until very recently had binders and clipboards and pencils and charts and paper. The other nice thing about that is that it's shareable uh, to um, parents 
And it's also shareable to other professionals. And we can someday we'll have a nice conversation about what is a work product and what is a student record. But when we have formal data that's in a, a finalized format and it's in a graphical format, um, it's really powerful. And so that has been a surprising improvement in the quality um, and integrity of our applied behavior analysis programming, which isn't the only thing we do here, certainly. But for that piece, it has gotten people uh, freed up and focused on kids instead of paper. And I really, really was happy we did that. I fought doing that for a long time. And I regret that. Um, I want to say that when we were handpicking these questions for this mailbag episode from a whole a whole bunch of emails, I, I thought it was interesting to see sort of the cross-section of people that were emailing us. <clears throat> so we had um, other special ed administrators, we had teachers, we had parents, um, we had a couple of people that are our friends of ours, our coworkers of ours sort of weighing in. And what was interesting to me was that, <clears throat> at least from the email perspective, that we seem to be hitting all of our target audiences. Um, and they were presented in the types of questions we were getting. Even though we're so Massachusetts focused, um, we were able to be responsive to some questions from people from other parts of the country, Texas and Florida. So um, I just wanted to make that comment because I, Abby always does a really good job of kind of at the end wrapping up and saying, and for those teachers out there, or for those special educators out there, or for those parents out there, <laughs> and does a nice job of doing that. But um, it seemed to have really resonated with a variety of, of listeners, which I think is really awesome. I think you just wrapped it up really well. I and think she did. And I would say that we love questions. We do answer them via email. And so um, if you do ask us questions, we'll respond to you. We don't wait until obviously we have a mailbag episode and then maybe you'll get picked for our next mailbag episode um, in the future. So I hope that if you have a question, don't hold on to it. Um, and I think looking forward, we only have about one or two left and then we're gonna close it down for this season and um, start looking forward to a summer break. And so we're excited to have a couple more episodes and then we'll we'll be off for a while. So um, I hope everyone has a good week and you'll hear from us again next week. And um, Abby, Angela, take care, have a good week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.